in a libertarian society with, where the government doesn't do anything, uh, the responsibility falls on citizens to do stuff. Uh, at the moment, that responsibility is the state's. So, you know, with freedom comes responsibility. Hello there, how are you all? Are you all doing well? Excuse me, I'm a little bit croaky. We were back at football yesterday and I was screaming my head off like an idiot. And so, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit croaky today, but I hope you all had a good Christmas. I hope you took some time off. I did. Had some nice time with the family. Chilled out a bit, eat some good food, drank far too much. And we're coming to the end of the year. It's a lot to reflect on this year. It's been a really strange year. Started so well and lots of weird stuff's happened. But I'm going to be reflecting on that over the next few shows and thinking about 2023. But anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got my buddy Dominic Frisbee back on the show. Now, I was in London recently making a run of shows, and whenever I have a chance to get Dominic, I get him on, because I love talking to Dominic. He's uh, He's got such a broad perspective on so many topics that are relevant to us as Bitcoiners. And also, he was recently in my film I made. I made a film about inflation that's up on my YouTube. I think that's linked in the show notes, so if you haven't checked that out, please go and check that out. But yes, it was great to great to get Dominic on. Uh, we talked about some a musical he's been working on, which is super interesting. But we also talked about deficit spending. Obviously, whenever I whenever I talk to Dominic, we're going to get into tax. So listen, I know you'll enjoy this one. If you've got any questions about it, do reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And yeah, get in touch. I will get back to you as soon as possible. Okay, enjoy the show, and I'll see you all soon. Good afternoon, Dominic. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Peter, how's it going? Yes, good, good. Good to see you. Uh, that film we made, by the way, will be... I'm going to publish it on Tuesday. I, I was meant to ask you about that. Yeah. I thought it had... Uh... I thought it had just sort of got lost, no. as things do. The editing process just took a long time, but it's ready, it's all done, it's all finished. So that's going to go on Tuesday. It's going to be, it's about 25 minutes long. Okay. It's about the right length. Um, so we've got one more to go. We're going to make one in January about mining. Yeah. And uh, and then it's kind of like, okay, can we now get a properly financed set of films? But thank And you the ecological stuff relating to mining? Uh, we've got so many angles. We're trying to think what is the through line we want for it. We haven't fully decided yet. Um I'm most interested in the areas of mining that nobody expected would have happened. Okay. You know, which is the ecological, is the you know, flaring gas and the, um, um, you know, the methane at dumps at landfills. But also, you know, some stuff that's coming out that's happening in Africa to deliver low-cost energy, you know. So I think you got Putin? <laughs> Not yet. He's, 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 uh, he's, they're going to use some of their oil and gas for mining. Well, we'll come back to Putin. We'll come back to Putin. Anyway, how okay. you been, man? Yeah, very good, very good, very good. What's new? Well, my my sort of big ongoing project at the moment is is nothing to do with Bitcoin or mine or anything to do with that or even investments. It's a it's a musical that I've been working on, and I'm going to try and I don't know what color what colors are left. I'm going to try and brown pill you. It's brown. I, I'm going to try and kisses on a postcard pill you. All this, right, okay. This musical's called Kisses on a Postcard. Way, we've got to go to one of his evenings. We've never actually yeah, been to absolutely. one of your stand-ups. December the sixteenth, this Friday, Camden. If you Ooh, fancy it, I'm that doing might be. I might be. I might have to bring my dad. Even better. Can you just stick that in my diaries? Does yeah. he have unacceptable views? Is so. Uh, <laughs> yes, I took after my. Um, after my mum died, my dad was like obviously in a pretty miserable place. So I took him to see the Book of Mormon. Oh, isn't and, it the best? And it just yeah, and it was just perfect. He just pissed himself for two hours, and 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 I think it was just the right thing at the right time. So yeah, it, he has a, he has a not as, he's not as dark as I am, but yeah, he, yeah, he is. You'd like him. Good, good. I, meant, I sort of meant unacceptable political views rather than. I think I think he's more just doesn't give a fuck anymore. Okay, he well, morons. I think that happens as you get older. Yeah. 
but yes, yeah, so Book of Mormon, by the way, is just a fantastic musical. And yeah. this this is um, something that my dad was a writer, quite successful, now no longer with us, that my dad wrote in the 1980s. And it's broadcast on Radio 4, and it was all about his experiences as a Vaki in World War II. Are you familiar, gentlemen, with the story of the Vakis? I don't know what a Vaki is. Okay, I'm going to tell you in a second. And then it got optioned to be a film, and then the film didn't happen, and then his friend had been urging him to take it, turn it into a mute. Ken Loach optioned it to be a film, but then the film never happened. Oh, Ken Loach is great. Oh, yeah, the best. And it, But it got stuck in sort of development hell and all the rest of it. And then in the noughties, they turned it into a musical, uh, chance encounter and it ended up being put on as a community theatre project in Barnstable which is a little known town in North Devon and I went to see it and it was the best thing I'd ever seen in the theatre and I fell in love with it and I was like we have to make this happen we have to get this into the West End somehow and dad was like I know and I said nobody's ever done that to a room before and so one of the reasons I started writing about finance, almost the main reason was I was trying to figure out how to raise three to five million quid to get this, how to make the money to turn my own, you know, little bit of money into three to five million quid in order to raise the money to bring this thing to the West End. And that got me writing about gold. And then it was writing about gold that got me into libertarianism and sound money. And then that got me into, and I started a podcast and blah, blah, blah. And that got me writing my, I wrote a film called, um, Four Horsemen, which was very popular, uh, co-wrote it. And then I wrote uh, my first book. And then when I was writing my first book, the argument of the first book is we need to fix money if we're going to fix the world. And then uh, Bitcoin came along while I was writing the book. So there was a little chapter on Bitcoin. And then I wrote the Bitcoin book in 2013, 2014, and so on. So this musical's kind of what got me starting the whole thing. And then my dad died a couple of years ago, 20, August 20, uh, April 2020. And during the lot, and, and I went, I was clearing through his stuff, and there was this script and the CD, and I took it home, and it was just sat on my shelf. And every, I had some reason, you know, every I put it in a place in my desk accidentally, but where it would just catch my eye just over the top of, to the left of my computer screen, to the top left of my computer screen. And every day in the lockdown, I'd be sat there doing whatever on my computer, and that thing would catch my eye, kissing on a postcard. And a bit like you with Bedford, I was like, I have to do this. Well, that's funny you say that. So my whole thing with wanting... I wanted to make like three to five million because I wanted to buy a football club. Yeah. So in 2017, when I first got into crypto, I like traded this original 32 grand up to 1.5 million. Uh, I remember it was Christmas. My dad was like, was it 1.5, 1.2? I can't, the number's ridiculous. Yeah. My dad was like, you need to sell some of this. He's like, sell half of it, buy three houses, you protect it. I was like, no, dad. Give me six more months. I'm going to turn this into five million by the football club. Obviously, that all went to shit. Yeah. <laughs> It's that's when, but but it happens, Chasing and I've dreams. done it, and I've I've like nearly got to the amount of money I did once with gold mining shares, and then again, any I didn't never quite did it. Yeah. Anyway, so during the lockdown, this thing was looking at me, and I was like, I don't have the means to turn it into a film. It, this thing should be a film or a series on Netflix or something, but I would need you know tens of millions. But not only that, you need powerful allies. To make a film work, you need powerful allies. Similarly, to get something on in the West End, you need to know the guys who run the theatres, the PR. You just need powerful allies on your side. Otherwise, it's very hard. I don't have the means to turn it into a film. I didn't have the means to turn it into a, a live show in the West End. And the problem with a live show in the West End is that once the curtain goes down on the last night, it's dead. That's it. It's gone. It's history. So 
and I, you know, I've worked all my life in voiceovers and I, I know all about audio and I write songs and all the rest of it. So I was like, I'm going to turn this into a podcast, an audio podcast. And there are all sorts of different versions of the story. And in the end, I made this huge audio podcast that lasts four and a half hours. It's got about, and it's like a musical podcast experience. And we got loads of big names from musical theater in it because it was the lockdown and nobody was doing anything. Then we had all these like, so we had a 14-piece orchestra and a cast of 50, right, including 25 kids. And we had this studio booked in to record it. And they were really breaking my balls about COVID. Oh, everyone's going to be two metres apart, mask, COVID tests. And I was like, I don't have the resources to, to do this. And then and I, they were breaking my balls so much. And we were, this was like on the Thursday. And we were going into the studio on the Monday to record it. So at the last minute, I phoned around all the other studios and uh, the first one I phoned up was Abbey Road. And, uh, as you do. As you do, aim high. And for, they were like, the youngsters, oh. uh, that's a very famous studio for the Beatles. Yeah, Abbey, Abbey Road is the most famous studio in the world, I'd say. Yeah. And it's where the Beatles recorded all their stuff. But it's, you know, you see whoever Stormzy's there now, whoever. It's the best studio in the world. Anyway, and they were like, oh, this... This conductor's just come over from France and he has to do two weeks in quarantine. Uh, so the studio's free. We'll give it to you at cost. Sweet. And I was like, well, yeah. And so we recorded, you know, 60% of it was recorded live at Abbey Road. So it's just been blessed with all this good fortune. And anyway, now it exists and it's Kisses on a Postcard uh, and it's at kissesonapostcard.com and it is free. You can listen to the... Po I put it out for free because I just want as many people to listen to it as possible. I'm going to lose so much money on it, but I just don't care. I just want people to... And it's permanent. That's the okay. beauty of the internet. Once something's up, it's this is there forever. But there are also CDs that you can buy, but which make a nice Christmas present for people who still have CD players. I was going to say, who still has a CD Quite player? a few people, you'd be really? surprised, in their car. I um, have got about 1,500 CDs at home in a box, boxes. I don't know what to do with them. I, I know the feeling. I'm the same with records. I've, I'm from the record era, and I've got... I used to collect records, and I've got probably from this wall to over there in records. And you've got a record player, right? I do, but I never play them. I've got a record player. Danny said it. Have you ever me. played it? I actually have, yeah. Have you? I'm yeah. impressed. I've been playing some <laughs> records. Again. Occasionally going the... It's the no TV room. Have you ever to change the speed on it yet? Uh, no. So some records I can't play. <laughs> so, it's, so some records work, and then some it's like the chipmunks, and I don't know how to change the speed. <laughs> it's a really strange... like It's a very ornamental like record player, so you actually have to lift the platter up and like move the belt to make it play. Is that how you do it? Yeah. Okay. So now I know. But, right. Yeah. So... Now I'm going to tell you the story. Okay. And it's, the show is called Kisses on a Postcard. Have you ever cried in your podcast before? Have I cried in my podcast before? Only when I'm editing it. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? The one we didn't actually release, I kind of welled up. Do you remember the, we lost the video for the lady? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember her name? name. I got upset in that one. But I do cry a lot. I mean, okay. I'll, cry, I'll cry in a good film. Uh, I've struggled to tell this story without crying, and there's a small chance, if, you're, if you've any sort of heart, Peter... <laughs> God, put the pressure on me. <laughs> you'll cry. And so the show's called Kisses on a Postcard. Okay. And it's about my dad. When he was seven, and his brother... My dad was called Terry, and his brother Jack was 11. And it's World War II, 1940. He's living in southeast London, Deptford. And... The last soldiers have just come back from Dunkirk and Britain is about to be bombed. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. And every single kid in, a, in the cities in the UK is being evacuated to the countryside. I think, I can't remember if it's four or eight million kids were evacuated 
1939-40, and they got the name Vakis. And they were sent from their parents, separated from them. If the kid was under five, the parents could go. Otherwise, the kids were separated from their parents, and they were put on a train into the countryside. And nobody knew where they were going, who would be taking them in, or how long they would be going for. And it's an extraordinary situation that happened to our country. And you can imagine being separated from your kids when they're seven and eight, nine, ten years old. Imagine how it was for the parents. And so my grandmother, to turn it into an adventure for them, she came up with this plan to sort of cover up what was going on. And she gave them a postcard, and it was a stamped address postcard. And it said, Dear Mum and Dad, arrive safe and well, love Jack and Terry. And so Terry, my dad, was seven, and Jack was 11. And the kids are like, and they were to write the address of where they ended up on the postcard and send it home. And the kids are like, yeah, but what's the code? And she said, you know how to write a kiss with a cross? You put one kiss, if it's horrible, and I'll come straight down and get you. You put two kisses, if it's okay, and you put three kisses, if it's nice, and then I'll know. So she gives them the card. They, she writes their name on a little name tag. They each have a name tag around their neck, little bag with their gas mask, sandwiches, pajamas, change of clothes, and they walk down to the station along with every other kid in their school. And you can imagine the saying goodbye to your kids. You put them on a train with their name tags and you just wave goodbye and you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. Imagine, this happened to the whole country. And so dad gets on the train and they go on the train all the way through London, across London, and then they go all the way across the whole country, six hours, and they end up in Cornwall, in Liscard, which is Cornwall, for American guys listening, or anyone anyway, is probably the most remote part of the country. It's, It's the sort of the southwest corner of England. And they get off the train in Liscard and they're put on buses and they're all sent to little villages out in the area. And dad and 50 other kids from his um, school end up in this little village called Dobwalls, middle of nowhere. And they're herded into the village hall and the kids are all made to stand there in the middle of the village hall and all the locals come into the village and they stand around and they go, I'll take that one there. And they're all chosen like cattle in a cattle market. Can you believe it? That was how they did it. No mobile phones or any of that stuff. No checks. And these strange accents, these strange thick, ooh, our Cornish accents, all that going on. These strangely dressed, all farmers, all farming folk. And the other thing that my nan had said to dad and his brother was, you stay together. Whatever happens, you stay together. My dad is seven, his brother's 11. And they get chosen, this Welsh woman, Auntie Rose, chooses them, along with her husband, Uncle Jack. And they were Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack, and they were a Welsh couple who'd moved down to Cornwall after World War I. He'd been a soldier in the Welsh band. They didn't know this at the time. They were just picked out by this strange Welsh couple. But he'd been a soldier in World War I. He was only five foot tall, and he'd been in a regiment called the Welsh Bantams, um, which were all under five foot 
little Welshman. After the tall guys had been shot, they went for the little... Because initially you had to be above a certain height to join the army. And he'd been in this massacre called the Mammotswood Massacre against the um, Prussian Guard, who were all six foot four, all over six foot, you know, beautiful blonde-haired German guys. The Welsh Bantams against the Prussian Guard. And when he told them the story about what happened, only 17 of them survived this huge massacre. And Uncle Jack, this man, would say... Everyone's the same height when a bullet hits him. He's horizontal. That was the line he would say, but that's later in the show. Anyway, they get chosen by this couple. And the reason this couple had come down to Wales is that when he went back to the village in Wales, he was the only man from the village who returned from the war. And all the other women in the village, this is World War I now, all the other village women in the village would just look at him and think, you know, where's my husband? What happened to my man? And it got too much and they eventually left the village and they came down to Cornwall. And he worked on the railways. He'd started out as a coal miner and now he worked on the railways. So Dad and his brother Jack, Terry and Jack, they're picked by this couple, Auntie Rose and Uncle Jack. And they walk back to their house and it's number seven railway cottages. There's a row of railway cottages next to the railway. He worked on the railway. They've got the railway at the end of the cottages, which was the London to Penzance line. Dad and his brother loved railways. My granddad worked on the railways. You know that generation who just mm. loved steam trains. And they go into, his, into this house and there's no electricity, only oil lamps. There's a cat asleep by the fire, a canary in a cage, two shells from World War I on the mantel shelf. In the garden, there's a pig and some chickens. They look outside and there's like woods and valleys and rivers to dam and, and adventures to be had. And no toilet outside privy. And un Uncle Jack and Auntie Rose have got this son called Gwyn, who's a soldier himself. He was a bit weird. And this scene that I'm going to play you now takes place on the very first night and the two boys are deciding how many kisses to put on their postcard. How many kisses? I vote three. What would mum and dad think of it here? Don't know. No electricity. They wouldn't like that. I don't care. There's no bathroom. I don't care. Outside love. Mum and Dad will think it's rotten here. They'll be worried. 
worried. Yeah, well, there's the trains, they're good. And the station, right next to us. That's terrific. Hey, wait, I've just remembered. Hens! What about hens? Eggs, stupid. Real eggs. Not that horrible powdery stuff. Eggs for you, eggs for me. Eggs for breakfast, supper and tea. Poached or baked, scrambled or fried. I'm bored with soldiers on the side. What do you say now? What's your score? Why not? Mum only set up to three. But don't you see? The more kisses we put, the more happy they're going to be. Yeah. It's terrific here, really, isn't it? Like being on holiday, only there's no seat. We don't have to stop at four. Let's do hundreds! Yeah! Look at them, fast asleep, and they've covered the card in kisses. Night, night, boys. Kisses on a postcard by Terence Frisbee. I'm not gonna cry. And that's true. They covered the card in kisses and sent it home. Did you uh, did you write the music? I that song was written by a man called Gordon Clyde, okay. who was a mate of my dad's, who died in two thousand and eight. Okay. The music was sort of half finished when Gordon died, and Dad got other people involved and tried to finish it off. But what we did when I adapted it is I took all the songs that Gordon hadn't written, and we basically got rid of them. And then me and the guy who I write my songs with, we wrote all the rest of it, and. It turned out that my mate's dad had also been evacuated to Cornwall. It was one of those happy little coincidences. Right. So about the half the music is by me and my buddy, and the other half is by Gordon Clyde. Send me uh, the full link. We'll have to mm-hmm. listen to that. Uh, we usually do this in the end. How do people listen to that? Kissesonapostcard.com. Right. We and you can buy out. a CD and you can get links. It's on Apple Podcasts or whatever. You can get links to all the podcasts. I'm not how, sure how we segue to that. would be a putin for that. Well, <laughs> we, we, we'll, we'll just do it, make I mean, it awkward. War, war. It's uh, kind of cool, though. Do you, did you yeah, like it? And yeah, that's just no, the is, first 20 is. minutes. No. And you get the whole of the story of World War II through the eyes of this little village. Do you know what? I didn't know the story of the evacuation. I didn't... I, We're not so, taught it. No, well, so I knew about um, uh, the underground being used as bunkers mm-hmm. and to hide out during bombings. I knew about that. And I'd seen... Was it World War Two in colour? Oh, yeah. 
I've, or was it, there was something I've watched on like Netflix or something. I watched all about the D-Day and the landings and I watched all about like the, the race. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it was incredible to watch. If you haven't seen this, by the way, it's, it, is, it is incredible. But I didn't know about the evacuation. Biggest movement of people in our country's history. Wow. It Prior to D-Day, all the, this is what, why I think this would be popular in America. Prior to D-Day, all the American soldiers come over and they're all billeted in villages around the country. And by whatever quirk of destiny, one of the regiments that was billeted on in this village in Cornwall was a village from Louisiana, one of those all black regiments. So as a load of black guys came to Cornwall and, um, you know, that bit of... Actually, Cornwall had a long history of naval trade and war and all the rest of it with... um, North Africa, because of just where it is on the sea. But that bit of Cornwall, no one had ever seen a black man before. Hmm. And um, we exploit, you know, the New Orleans music and everything like mad. We got loads. And so there's some great numbers. And um, that's another. And then one of the local girls gets pregnant and there's a big scandal because she's had a mixed race kid and all the rest of it. Right, okay. That's a big, it's all a big part of the show. Well, I would definitely listen to it. And do you know what it does make me think though? Like, you know, looking at a time of World War II um, where the countries worked together and said, let's evacuate, let's protect these kids and families are coming and taking them and looked after them. It's like the country really came together at a time that's needed. And then you look around right now, we've got a fragmented society. We've got people who cannot heat their homes in freezing fucking temperatures this week. I mean, this week was cold and people cannot afford to freeze their homes. We've got politics that isn't working we've got just everything it's everything feels broken it feels like we're you know we've we've rebuilt a country after a war and we've taken it to a point of complete fragmentation like i'm really pessimistic about the next i don't know how many years dominic 10 years i don't know but we i agree we are a mess and there's no coherence there's no we can't even agree what it is to be english anymore we can't uh define ourselves and until we can define ourselves and what our laws are how can we ha- how can anything uh hope to work we and it's not just us it is the whole of western europe and probably the united states as well and uh, and it's all because of russian propaganda <laughs> well, there, there's, I, for <laughs> me look there's a distinct lack of credible believable leaders who you can look at and go i i can get behind you like rishi sunak no Keir Starmer? No. They're both guys who would, if you stuck them in a major institution, Goldman Sachs or the BBC or whatever, yeah. they would both end up being CEO. They know how to get to the top of an institution, but it's funny, you we, can need, all, we, need a, we need some charisma. You can occasionally have someone go, oh, I don't mind so-and-so, and there's going to be somebody listening going, well, I can't believe it. Do you know what? I don't mind Angela Rayner. I don't mind her. I think she's kind of interesting. I think she I, cares about I went people. to a, 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 a drinks last night and Penny Morden was speaking, and I've always, always secretly had a bit of a crush on Penny Morden. Yeah. And... I mean, she was terrible. Really? She's just so bland and just so nothing. I was like, you were nearly prime minister. And, and just, she couldn't even read the speech. And, and, and she, all she was doing was attacking the Labour Party. And I was like, oh, come on. Well, I worry if it's like any kind of uh, uh, like uniqueness is beaten out of them in the process of becoming somebody who, who has power. And she was really scared before she went on. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I um, interviewed Ted Cruz out in America recently. and He's great. Is he? Mm. I, heard, I only heard his stuff on Bitcoin mining. Well, so. he's, no, he's good, he's good on Bitcoin. Um, people have mixed feelings of it. I'm not going to pass judgment. What I will say is that it was an interview in a 
the conference in front of a you know, few hundred people, and he all he did was attack the Democrats over and over and over. And I put a question to him, and I said to him, "I'm not from around here. It just seems like the red team and the blue team really hate each other. But on this issue of Bitcoin, we need you not to fight. We need it not to be a partisan issue because Bitcoin benefits everyone. Better money means." a better life for everyone and you're meant to represent your constituents the ones who vote for you and the ones who don't how do we stop it becoming a partisan issue and he rambled some stuff off and i turned around and said can you name me one thing you like about the democrats one thing they do well and he gave a really soft answer to do with they're very good at almost like politicking i was like no one give me one policy thing they're better than you and he said i can't and that's where we got. It's now so polarized and divided, mm-hmm. and it's happening here now. Yeah, same thing is happening here. And it's just like, how do we break this? Yeah, if if all the Conservative Party is worried about is Labour, that's not the way to take a country forward and lead a country forward. And you know, I was in Korea about four or five years ago, and I was looking around Korea, even Japan, and I was like, this these countries are ten years ahead of us particularly technologically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Western Europe, you think we were the, we set the trend for the whole world and we are falling behind. This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically. So you just have to receive your Bitcoin wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount, and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. 
Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Well, this interview we did with Dan Tubb, um, King Bingo on Twitter, yeah. fascinating interview. He, I mean, his summary is that we are breaking and we are beyond the point. We are, we're past the point of no return. This cannot be fixed. Our, our, the amount of debt we're having to service is too high. Our spend, have you got those charts? Yeah. Dig these out. Just I'll show you these because I think this will need license. I know the thread you mean. I yeah. know him and I think he's great and I think he's on it. So let me show you these charts though because I think what's interesting about these, this will actually lead on to the... Sure. The, the Putin thing very well, which I wasn't aware he said, which... Um, right, so anyway, this is the presentation. So this is what he showed us. Uh, it's really interesting. Yep. So revenue and spending. So yep. 2016, 56, 58, and you can see the national debt growing. Yep. But then when I looked at 2018, I was like, surely we can find a way to, like, we can save 32 billion spending. We can cut 32 out somewhere, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, carries on. Then we obviously have a big jump in 2021 because yeah. of COVID. Great chart. Yeah, it gets better. And that's better. presented really well. So, so then he does it in terms of people. Yeah. So we basically taking around 25,000 in revenue and spending's about 32,000 per person. So that's per worker. Grand. Yeah, and, and per worker. And that's the deficit. Our national debt is about 67,000 a person. Per person, per right. worker. Like Carry on, Danny. Mm -hmm. But this was us back in 2000. Revenue and spending was about the same. The national debt was you know, 14 grand. He said, think of it as a credit card. Mm -hmm. You've got a 14 grand credit card, you can kind of get rid of that. If you had the 70 grand one, you kind of fucked. And then he starts going on about, this is, so this is the public spending. Yeah. So of our uh, 1.1 trillion, 211 billion is the NHS, 178 The big billion problem pensions. is the one at the bottom. Mm. Debt interest. Yeah, because that's going up. I think the debt interest is a problem because it is going up and that's caused this death spiral. But I also think the NHS, I want to talk to you about that as well. I love the fact that the interest on the national debt is now more than the education budget. Yeah. <laughs> what a scandal though as that's well. That's terrible. Yeah. And so like in my head is like, yeah, I'm, try I'm just trying to, I don't know, I'm not going to have the answers. I'm not going to change society. But So these are the different ways he said. Default, you know, cut spending, tax the rich, raise growth. None of them are going to None work. of them are possible. The, the, the growth thing was possible when with trust, but that's gone now. Yeah. And lower taxes have gone for a generation. Yeah. Or so, not for a generation, 15 years. And you can't tax the rich enough to cover the... Uh, the leaf. So, so, so in, in my mind, it has to be a cut. It, it can be done. If you were over budget, you would have to cut spending. And if you have to move house or sell, you, like, as painful as it is, we all have to manage a budget. What's the nickname of your football team? The Printers. Actually, we changed it. Oh, uh, have you? That was the original name, but yeah. everyone keeps calling us the Pirates. So oh. we're going with it. That's kind of cool. But, but that's, that's, go on. But if on. you keep printing, that's cause other issues. But so, so, so he's basically saying we're fucked either way. At some point, we're going to hit hyperinflation because they can't, won't be able to print enough to keep up. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I mean, for me, look, the cancer of this is the political cycle doesn't incentivize anyone to stand up and say, we're going to be the government of uh, austerity. We're going to cut spending. But it's they, toxic. They've got to find a way of basically take... He said they've got to reduce spending by $120 billion a year to not uh, increase the deficit, but to pay it off over, what was it, 20 years? Something like that. We have to cut another 100 So we've got to take a quarter of a trillion out. Where can you take it? 
Now, first thing, you could just get rid of the NHS. That would do it, nearly. But I think it's multiple areas you've got to cut. And the healthcare I'm, would improve. Well, so I wanted to know your thoughts on the NHS, because I am a fan of the NHS. I like the, I've been to America, and I've had just, to go to hospital, and it's scary. And I like the fact that anyone here can get seen. But the NHS is a fucking mess. We're spending more money and getting a worse service. Like, I don't know what the answer is. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpick there. The first thing I would say is that I've heard these arguments that hyperinflation is around the corner. He's not saying hyperinflation. He's just saying we can't, eventually the currency will come. He's okay. saying the system can't save itself. It's, it's the, uh, like, I've got a lot of time for Dan. Yep. He's a clever guy. We message each other all the time. And the, um, but I've heard these arguments that collapses around the corner, the spending is unsustainable, you know, the only solution is to hyperinflate. These are all Austrian arguments, Austrian economic arguments. And in 2008, it was happening. It looked like the whole thing was going to go under. And then quantitative easing came along and they, they, they didn't, it didn't collapse. The system didn't collapse. They, and so all the Austrians said, oh, they've just kicked the can down the road. And, you know, now we really do seem to be under extraordinary pressure. And even between 2008 and now, if you just look how much the pound and the dollar have devalued by relative to how much, you know, not relative necessarily to each other, but relative, you know, how much less house can you buy uh, now compared to what you could buy? You know, house prices have probably doubled since 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, give or take. I mean, they're down a bit now. And so I've heard these arguments before and, you know, my portfolio is positioned so that if everything does go up the swanee and there's a mad rush into gold and Bitcoin, I will be okay. Okay. I will do very well. But I've also heard these arguments a lot and it never, they just always seem to find some way of just extend and pretend or whatever you want to call it. They always find some way of dragging it out. But that's what Dan thinks. He thinks that's the, the way they're going to do that. Is they're more... going to invent some new way of creating money that's got something just as incomprehensible CBD. as quantitative easing. CBD, they're, they're coming. And control. He thinks it's going to be CBDCs and control. Yes, you know, uh, I would agree with that. He thinks it's no coincidence. And it sounds a bit conspiracy theorist, but he said there's no coincidence at the moment that we've got uh, these uh, just stop oil protesters doing like outrageous things because that's going to give the government an argument to have uh, more control over protests and because they think he thinks civil disobedience is coming mm -hmm. and to the point where they're going to need to have more control. Yeah, so got all these strikes coming as well. Exactly. So I think his view, and I kind of see it, is that it's not like we're going to go like Venezuela and Zimbabwe and have complete currency collapse and police complete no. anarchy. It's going to be a continual slow decline. And and I'm seeing things like that. I've brought the film that you were in. I, mm -hmm. You know, I went to that Terminus house in Harlow. I keep bringing this up in the show because for me, it was a it was a ghetto in the UK. They've turned an office block into uh, social housing, and there's like hundreds of people putting it together. And it's a, a center of deprivation, crime. It's awful. I mean, it's terrible. And I'll, I'll, what I think we're seeing is we're seeing a country whose GDP is going up, the wealth gap increasing, and we've got real massive amounts of absolute poverty in this country people who cannot people are choosing between food and heating and sometimes don't have either like we we should be a wealthy country and we're going to fucking shit and i think that's what's going to happen it's just going to get what crime is going to go up the the wealth gap is going to get uh, higher and there's going to be more poverty and they're just going to control the decline 
And I think they'll do it in a way that protects, makes sure certain people stay rich. I see the South Africanization of the UK. Okay. I think we're following a similar path. Explain. Corruption of our institutions, mm -hmm. massive corruption, rising uh, crime, uh, rising gated communities, different groups of people treated differently, the rise in, like when I was in South Africa in um, 2010, it would have been, or was it 2012? It was when the World Cup was on, 2010. And I was working out there and we were staying in Johannesburg and we were, we were supposed to stay in this hotel in Johannesburg. And when we got there, this there's a whole team of people working in broadcasting. Uh, the hotel just hadn't been built. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were put up in this sort of emergency uh, uh, accommodation and we had this big presentation by this enormous African security guard who's got one of those, you know, really frightening accents like this and he's got these huge hands <laughs> and he's pointing at the, the, the board, the the. The, the slides. He doesn't bother with the clicker. He's just pointing at the slides. And he's got this, this is Johannesburg. You must not walk in Johannesburg by night. You may walk in Johannesburg by day. This area here, this is Hillbrow. You don't go to Hillbrow day or night. Am I clear? <laughs> and then somebody goes, where's our hotel then? And he looks through his things and he goes, Hillbrow. <laughs> <laughs> and oh so we ended up, and you couldn't walk outside the hotel. You had to be escorted in a in a security car anytime you went anywhere and um all the south africans white or black were complaining like mad about immigration to south africa from the rest of africa they had a massive immigration problem because relative to the rest of south africa uh, relative to the rest of africa south africa was perceived as rich and they had massive immigration from nigeria and for whatever reason and the South Africans all hated the Nigerians. They're fucking coming over here, taking our jobs, all that kind of stuff. But all the Nigerians, or a large portion of Nigerians, ended up working in the security industry in Johannesburg. I don't know why. But you know how different people from different countries end up in different sectors of the, of the um, economy for whatever reason. Anyway, I became very friendly with this security guard uh, who was the guy who used to drive me around in the car and it was really, really cold in Johannesburg, freezing cold. And on the, um, we'd been given all these like fleeces, these warm clothes to wear. I remember going to watch Brazil against North Korea <laughs> in minus four. It was minus four. And you can imagine all those beautiful samba dancers trying to do their thing that they do, freezing their nuts off. And it was just an extraordinarily mad experience. And, and then, I remember we would, were in the we were in the bus coming back from the game, and the bus driver just hit somebody walking along the. Somebody walked out into the street like a tourist who didn't know the road straight out into the street. The bus driver just hit him, just and like ran him over, and he was just not flying this bloke, and the bus driver tried to drive off, like his first instinct was to just flee the scene of the crime, and and we were all like, you've got to stop, you know, and everyone was like videoing him stuff, and so he's eventually he stopped. But then, anyway, we, I had all these warm clothes from me and the team. So I said to my security guy, look, let's go down to Hillbrown. We'll find some people who could do with these warm clothes because you, I'm not going to wear them again when, we, when I go home. So I had this big black bag full of clothes. 
And I remember the security guards got a gun, right, as security guards do. And we go into Hill, into the sort of town centre, and there, I just, there was just all these people asleep in the street. So I said, look, there's a load of people in the street there. Go and give them the bag. And the security guard goes to me, no, you go. I will watch. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll never forget that. And I got out the car. So I said, all right. And I got out the car. And it was like, I've never seen poverty like it. Like, I've just never seen anything like it. And these, it was like going back to another age, the clothes that people were wearing, the rags. It was like, you know, something set in, except for the fact that India's hot. It was like something set in, 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 in Calcutta in the 19th century or something like that. It was just, and just like people just, as soon as they saw me get out of the car, white man get out of the car, you know, I just did normal clothes, but I must have looked like, you know, some kind of rich God to them or something. They just literally swarmed all over me and they were just grabbing everything on me and there was literally nothing I could do. So the only thing I did, I just took my bag and I just threw it, in the air so that all the clothes went in a sort of shower everywhere and everyone went for the clothes and that just gave me like a macro second to jump back in the car again. Wow. But it was like, wow. Yeah. Kind of experience. And, but that sort of chaotic, already now in London, you're seeing private security vans like around Notting Hill and Belgravia, places like that. You never used to see those in the 70s or 80s when I was a kid. And, you know, this sort of, uh, siloing, you know, all this identity politics and everyone, uh, I just see this real uh, tension, racial tension between communities. There's a lot of anger about immigration, you know, and you'll see like all the elite, they haven't got, they don't know what to do with all the people coming over on the boats. So they just round them all up and they stick them in a hotel in Skegness or somewhere. And everyone in Skegness is like, whoa, 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 why are you sticking them all in Skegness? We've just suddenly got... 3,000 young men dumped in our town. What about our town? What about our community? And this is happening all over the country. And a friend of mine who lives in Worcester said that the, uh, not Worcester, Malvern. And he said that the most expensive hotel, all the homeless people in Malvern live sort of in the shadow of the most expensive hotel in Malvern. And the most expensive hotel in Malvern is now full of all these guys who just having their visas being processed. They don't know what to do with them. So they're all being put up in this expensive hotel in Malvern overlooking the local homeless people. And, you know, who are like, have been ignored by the system for years and years. And you'll, and so people are going to look at that and go, hang on a minute, these guys who may or may not be refugees, they might be illegal immigrants, they might be uh, just economic migrants, whatever they are, but they've never paid taxes, they've never done anything. They're being put in a five-star hotel and the local guy is sleeping homeless in a tent underneath him. You know, a lot of people are going to see a lot in that situation and that message. And and it's it's a very dangerous place that we're going to. And then as soon as you start going, these are our values, these are British values, these are British laws, uh, everyone goes, well, no. You know, people go and try and go, well, we're a Judeo-Christian country. And everyone goes, well, I'm not a Christian. Well, maybe, but it's still a Christian thing. But so then everything just ends up in an argument. And then Mm. Democrat and Republican and Conservative and Labour end up doing that. And nothing happens. And the the fundamental thing that government should do before it does healthcare and all this other stuff, it's got to police the nation, 
keep order and defend the borders. And it's not doing any of that. So, you know, if government can't even do those basic things, let alone healthcare and education, we're in a bad place. I want to know how we get the message across to a wider group of people of why there is such a problem with the deficit, why a growing deficit makes it even worse, and why something needs to be done about it. I think there's too much acceptance that the government can just, like whenever there's a problem, well, the government should just pay to fix that. Tax the rich. Tax the rich. What, yeah, but there's, there, you know, the, what it, in the US, I think, it, is it 70% of the tax comes from the top? One percent or five percent or something ridiculous. There's like stats like that as well. Like we know you can't. There's a limitation to. Like people just need to know the truth that you can't just tax the rich because you hit that. If you tax too high, they'll just leave the country or find ways to hide it. So there is a limit to how much you can tax people. There still isn't enough revenue that comes from that. The truth is the government just has to spend less. Yeah, they just have to. It just has to be that way. We all have to work harder, and they have to spend less. Even under Thatcher and Reagan, who were both great champions of balanced books and reduced fiscal spending, and they took on the unions and they changed the narrative and blah, 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 government still grew under Thatcher and Reagan. But there were periods of surplus. It just didn't grow by the same rate. I think the last person to run a surplus was Clinton in the late 90s. In the UK. Can you have a look? It was 2000, 2001 in the UK was the last time we had a... So, is that Blair? Blair Blair and Brown. Blair and Brown. The last chancellor who reduced tax, like one of the problems with the tax code is just the sheer complexity of it. Mm. And Nigel Lawson, when he was chancellor, made a thing with each budget he was going to remove a tax. And I think he was chancellor for six years, so he removed six different taxes. Nice. And he was the last guy to not only reduce taxes, but reduce the tax code. And since then, the thing has just got more and more bloated and they'll do this tax, but then there's this exemption for this person and this subsidy for this person and all that. And it just makes the whole thing. The, the tax code is now something like 15 times the length of the Bible. <laughs> I promise you, nobody's read it. But the longer it is and the bigger it is, all you do is create the more loopholes. And then it's only people with deep pockets, rich corporations or rich individuals who have the nav- who can find the loopholes. And in any case, the the idea of a national system with national borders is kind of irrelevant in this new globalized world that is the internet. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, where is Google located exactly? Yeah, well, I th- yeah, but you know what? I just think better, you know, better uh, government would find a way to tax these people. Well, land value tax is the answer to all of that. But then what they'll do is they'll introduce land value tax on top of all the other taxes. The system is, is designed as it is the democratic system, vote for us, we're going to give you this, that, and the other, is set up so that government will inevitably, the state will inevitably grow. Because it's literally, vote for us, we are going to do more to fix this, that, and the other problem. Nobody gets elected going, vote for me, we're going to give you less. Doesn't work. So essentially, we need revolution. Yep. Bitcoin, a peaceful revolution. Yep. And I'm always trying to think, how do I... Don't try and make it illegal. <laughs> how do I try and communicate these these people outside of sounding like a conspiracy nutter? Because I think they do think I'm a nutter. You know, I'm trying to explain to you know, my friends, like, this is, this is... I'm not making this up. You can go on the government's website. Here are the facts. This is the national debt. This is the increasing payments on that debt. This is the increasing spend. These are the implications. I'm not making any... This is all true. This, this is what we have to do to be able to pay it back. If we don't pay it back, these are the implications. I actually think it's a time where, where the country came together after, during World War II to protect the children, 
it's essentially the same now because it's our children we're fucking. Like I look at my children and oh, I'm like, I'm just leave. I just tell them to go. What? So they're not going to be able to afford a house. Just zero chance to be able to afford a house unless I help them. Um, so that they're going to be in a situation where there's going to be starting a family later in life. They can't afford yeah. to have as many kids. And then there's a shortage of labor. So they import more labor from abroad. And then the national identity gets eroded and destroyed. And we're in the vortex. It's, it is all fucked, but there is a way out. And the way out is to stop spending so much. To Everyone has to, as a nation, we have to work harder and the country has to spend, the, 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 the government has to spend less. To the point where I was even thinking, do you know they what? They tried it. Austerity, and they, they called it austerity, but it wasn't even austerity no. because spending still rose, but they still called it austerity. And, and it got absolutely uh, pilloried as being heartless and horrible and all the rest of it. And now nobody's going to mention the word austerity again. I have a very simple rule that would solve this. What happens if you stop paying your mortgage? I'm guessing you lose your home. You lose your home. So you run a budget, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you go into deficit, maybe borrow some, probably have to speak to your wife. And sometimes you run, most of the time you probably run a surplus. But we, every single person in this room has to run a budget and we can't have infinite debt because we end up bankrupt. I think any government that runs a deficit is immediately put up for re-election. At the point they run a deficit, you have to go be put up for re-election. So you have to run a ba balanced books. Maybe, I mean, you know, Crazy it's a nice idea. idea. Well, it's a yeah. nice idea, Peter, and if somebody proposed it, I'd vote for it, 100%, and probably a lot of people would vote for it. But um, the problem is, you know, if you don't pay your mortgage, you'd lose your house. The, the rules for government are not the same. But they should If we be. could all run up endless deficits, then we many of us would. Of course we would. But, but, and this is they, what... Of course they should, and but they don't, and they never have. But people don't know what they're sleepwalking into, and I'm like, how do I get this message to as many people as possible? Like, just... So, I mean, I, I, I've spent my life trying to get this message out <laughs> to people. I've written books about it. I do endless no. blogs and vlogs and things, and, and you probably... You're, you're seeing a jaded man who's just like, the, the, you can you can rail against it. You can suggest ideas. You can nudge. You can hopefully some of your ideas will catch on. You know, I wrote my daylight robbery. Loads of it was handed out to every politician in 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 the IEA. Gave it to every politician in the cabinet uh, last Christmas. You know, I've written the Bitcoin book. I've endlessly going on. If we're going to, but what it all comes down to, Peter, is there are two zero patients in all of this. And in fact, there's one zero patient, and. You know, fix the money. Do you know what I mean by a zero patient? When, yes. when you okay, I'll I'll just explain it in case anyone doesn't know. So in a zombie film, when they're trying to eradicate the virus, they have to get to the zero patient, which is where the virus started. And either the zero patient or patient zero, either it's got the antidote, or if they kill the patient zero, then they, you know, they yeah. rid themselves of the virus. It's like a trope of some zombie films and other kinds of films. Patient zero is the system of tax and the system of money. When government has the power to print money, when one body in a society has the power to print money at no cost to itself, to create money at no cost to... Let me rephrase that. When one body in a society has the power to create money at no cost to itself, um, when everyone else has to earn it, it is inevitable that that body will grow disproportionately large. And while money is the issuance of government, that is the system we run under. Once upon a time when gold was money, it wasn't so easy. You need an independent money system. That's one thing. The other thing is you design a society by the way that you tax it. 
It really is that simple. You determine a society's destiny. And at the moment, we tax labor very, very heavily. Now, if you're a young guy starting out in the world, all you have is your labor. That's literally all you have. But but because we tax it so heavily, it's very hard for that guy to catch up with the guy who's got money because he's constantly having 45 or 50% or whatever percentage of his labor taken from of, of his earnings. So it's very hard to progress. And then simultaneously, the money he's paid in is losing his purchasing power all the time. So he faces the double whammy of income tax and inflation. So that you have to do away with all of that and tax something else and not labor. But while income tax is the 50% of government revenue worldwide derives from income tax in one form or another, it's just not going to happen because it's the government's biggest source of revenue. <laughs> so I'm of the view that you just need to protect yourself, look after number one, vote with your feet if necessary, and try and do what you can and put your own little house in order. But you the, you cannot fix the system. The system just has to implode. And, you know, the, the law of history is that all fiat systems die sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And ours just seems to be dying this slow 100-year death. And, um, you know, whether you measure it from 1914 when we came off the gold standard or 1971 when the estates did, but you just see this incremental... And, you know, the way that Osborne tried to deal with it when he was chancellor was simultaneously they were going to inflate away some of the debt, they were going to have a little bit of growth, and they were going to uh, rely on um, increased tax revenue. And that was the sort of the three-pronged way they were going to do it. It's sort of half work for a bit. and now, But now, since COVID, the whole thing's just gone bananas. This show is brought to you by Big Casino. Established in 2013, Big Casino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, Bit Casino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about Bit Casino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N. Next up, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, 
you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training and development to make you successful in this emergent industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. We were going to talk about Putin. Well, we can segue into that because actually the one thing Dan said, well, the two things he said at the end, he's like, he is a believer in Bitcoin as a, as a solution to this. You, yeah. need a, you need a money independent of government. But he also said the BRIC nations might might not be affected by this, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, because they're not so anchored to the dollar system. And it's he... He, I think he's almost alluding to what everyone else has been alluding to. Like, yeah, we can talk about Putin attacking Ukraine, a sovereign nation, and, and yeah, being some evil invasion. But also at the same time, he has been t- talking about separating himself or separating the Russia from the the constraints of the dollar system. They've been trying to trade oil with uh, uh, China outside of the dollar. Mm-hmm. So. I think the thing... I didn't hear Putin say this. This is a big theme of mine. Yeah. Okay, so let's just backtrack a little bit. Pippa Malgram, fairly well-known well known economist, mm-hmm. she talks about us, World War III has already started, she says, and we're in, a, we're in a hot war in cold places. And by cold places, she means cyberspace, deep sea, space, uh, the Arctic... And then she says, we're in a cold war in hot places, Africa, Taiwan, so on. Quite a nice way of looking at things. But Mm -hmm. in her eyes, World War III has already started. Is she English? American. American. And she was a big cheese. She was like uh, on on President Bush's, um, one of his advisory committees. She's she's got a good substat. Anyway, we have this situation where, you know, the currency wars are... We're in, in currency terms, World War III has already started. And the way that the US weaponized the dollar against Russia was extraordinary. It confiscated its assets and, and Russia's finding it very difficult to trade. So Putin retaliated by saying you have to pay rubles for our oil and it resulted with the ruble being the best performing currency last year. <laughs> now, I've long since, like, Russia is desperately seeking alternatives to the dollar system. And they have this, they've got this guy who's designing a new monetary system and his name's Sergei Glaziev. Sergei Glaziev. And his former Kremlin advisor. And he's um, designing this new money system for the Eurasia Economic Union. Now, have you heard of the Russian Davos? No. Nope. This would be in St. Petersburg every year. And they had, it's in June every year. And the, I had people, I spoke to people who were there. And the overwhelming recurring theme of the Russian Davos last year in June is what are we going to use instead of the US dollar? 
what what system of money can we use? And so they're designing, Glaziev is designing this new digital currency that's going to be backed by a basket of foreign currencies and natural resources. But when you back a currency with natural resources, it's very problematic because you've got to, you know, grains go off after a year. So you start dealing with grain futures and then grains are problematic. And and so an oil and uh, you end up just using gold and silver because it's just easier. <laughs> they become the things. But the the problem with a, uh, a, a, um, a currency that would, and it would be for the nations, it would be China, India, Russia, uh, Kyrgyzstan, all those stands, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkey wants to join it. And this is, and so China's got this thing called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is basically east of Japan, uh, sorry, west of Japan and uh, east of Ukraine all those countries in that. And it's a huge, it's 40% of the world's population and something like 30% of its GDP. And it's the world's largest regional organization. And they want their own currency. But the problem with all those current countries is they're not that trustworthy. And none of them trust each other. Mm -hmm. So how are they going to design a system of money where they all cooperate? And the beauty of the US dollar, and to an extent the euro, is that in relative, relatively speaking, everyone trusted America. So the US dollar kind of worked. Everyone knew that for all its problems, America, you know, it's pretty sound. And so, you know, it's partly American military might impose the dollar, but a lot of countries just took it on voluntarily because, do you know what, Americans more reliable than we are. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the euro on a relatively, you know, basis, all those countries, France, Germany, whatever, Holland, they all trusted each other. And so the euro kind of works. But those countries, you know, Tajikistan, whoever it is, they don't trust each other. So my argument has been that they're going to end up using gold. But there's a problem with gold. And the, and the other thing about gold is I've spent ages studying China's gold holdings. And I'm just going to give you some numbers now. The America, because uh, ha- the beauty of gold is everyone can trust it. Mm-hmm. Gold has its problems, which which your listeners and you are well aware of. But but the America has. Let me just find the right figure here because I've got it written down. Um, about eight thousand tons of gold. So in Fort Knox. they say exactly. But let's just assume, for the sake of this, uh, that they have eight thousand tons of gold. China, on the other hand, has. Um, uh, about, uh, let me, sorry, I just can't find my numbers. Just give me one. Yeah, uh, 1,948 tons of China's stated gold. So about a bit less than a quarter of America's. But China has long since been the world's biggest gold producer. It's also long since been the world's biggest gold importer. And if you, you it's very hard to, you can work out how much gold it's produced since 2000. And it's produced about 7,000 tons of gold. So already you're going, but you said your reserves are 1,948 and you've produced 7,000 tonnes of gold and over half of your gold mining companies are state-owned. Already you're starting to go, that 1,948 tonnes figure is not right. Then you look at Chinese imports and you can't measure all imports. You can measure imports from Hong Kong, but you Dubai and Switzerland, the import, it's not all stated. But you can see how much gold has left the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which is where most of the gold that goes into China leaves via. And 
22,000 tonnes of gold since 2008 have been purchased by and delivered to physical gold buyers in China. So that's 22,000 tonnes plus the 7,000 tonnes that it's mined. So 29,000 tonnes. Actually, the number's going to be bigger than that because the bars that the Shanghai Gold Exchange export are 12 and a half kilo bars and um, the, uh, sorry, the... Chinese central bank likes 12 and a half kilo buyers, but they don't go through the Shanghai Gold Exchange. So it's, it's probably more. By the time you put all these number to, numbers together, I arrive at a figure, and I've, I've done the sums on my Substack, and you can, if somebody wants to read it, just frisbee.substack.com. But there's 33,000 tons of gold has made its way to China since 2000. Okay. 33,000 tons, just log that figure. Let's assume that half of that gold is state-owned. It's probably higher, but let's assume, so 16,000 tons, 17,000 tons, about that figure. That is twice as much gold as America has. And that's assuming America has its gold. So, and we all know that China wants its own currency and it wants reserve currency status and blah, blah, blah. If China were wanted to get involved in the currency wars. At the moment, it's just stayed out of it. All it has to do is go, oh, actually, this is how much gold we've got. And if it suddenly has twice as much gold as America, then the whole global financial landscape changes with one announcement. And I think China's quite ready for that. We also know, by the way, that Russia's accumulated loads of gold. And this guy, there's an analyst called Zoltan Pozar, who's arguing that, that so that all these shenanigans going on with Russian oil at the minute, where the EU is, and the uh, United States are trying to pose a cap on Russian oil of $60 a barrel. And what's happening now is that India's importing Russian oil and re-exporting it as diesel, and America's buying the diesel <laughs> to replenish its strategic reserves that it's been selling off in order to cap the oil price. So in a, with the result, the Russian oil is kind of making its way to America. It's a bit it's more complicated than that, but it's not going to last. And so a lot of people are saying, well, Putin's going to start demanding gold for oil if they're going to cap it at $60. I don't know if that happens, but there's a strong argument for it. And it's a natural progression of all the currency wars that have been going on. But then we have this wonderful quote that comes from uh, Vladimir Putin last mm. week. It desperately, the problem with gold is still... I can't send you, I have to send you gold by post mm. or by courier. I can't send it over the internet. And so how risky. do I, I'll say, and how do we know that the gold is pure? We have to rely on third party banks and exchanges to process the gold. We've still got the trust issue. Mm. So if only there was a system of money that you could send from A to B like without gold. trusted third, third parties that preserved its value and blah, blah, blah. Like a digital gold. Mm, that kind of thing. Doesn't have to look shiny, though. And uh, so Putin came up with this quote last week. And he it just sounds like it could have been Satoshi Nakamoto who said this. But he said, the technology of digital currencies and blockchains can be used to create a new system of international settlements that will be much more convenient, absolutely safe for its users, and most importantly, will not depend on banks or interference by third countries. I am confident like something that something like this will certainly be created and will develop because nobody likes the dictate of monopolists, which is harming all parties, including the monopolists themselves. Well, 
it already exists, Vladimir. And if you've self-Googled and you're listening to this podcast, you know, go to Bitcoin.org because well, you'll find all the information you need. I mean, he will know it's whether they want it to be that or something they feel like they have a bit more control over. Sure. That's the problem. Mm. But as soon as they invent something themselves, they're creating trusted third know, parties and, and they're, in, they're in that vortex. And so it might just be that they just go, well, okay, just for this trade, we'll use Bitcoin for this trade. Oh, actually, that worked quite well. Yeah. Let's just do it for this one. And, you know, Trojan horse job. Well, I mean, you can only hope. This is why we're here, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's to try and communicate and educate people that there is a better way. And there are consequences to having this form of money, but ultimately this is a better way. And it's it's strange to hear it's strange to hear someone like Vladimir Putin be the one to put it out and say in that. And I I just want to know the game theory behind it for him. Well, you I I just take people at the value and he is a game theory player. And the, the other big problem is, you know, do we want to be um facilitating trade for Putin? Is the <laughs> you know that's the problem with a with a, a censorship free money? Anyone can use it, even bad people. Yeah, I mean, I think Putin would always find a way to trade one way or another for one asset or another. So I don't think you stop him. Um, but Bitcoin is money for enemies. So yeah, you know, it is the truly it is the global money. It is the 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 it will be. It is the global reserve currency of the internet. Yes. How about that? Yeah. Something like that. The, the other thing I did just did want to ask, ask you about, because I don't know your opinion on this, um, but what what are your thoughts on the NHS? Just because that was all part of something. It's like sure. I am – like I, I, I respect a lot of your thoughts. I, I, I really appreciate your thoughts, especially on taxes. That you're not a no-tax person, but you're not a fair tax person. Uh, I think that we discussed that the first interview we ever did. I'm a fan of the NHS. My mum worked for it. I – I don't like the US system, but it is corrupt. It is costing 211 billion in that chart, and it is so fragmented and broken. I don't know where the money is going to be spent. I don't like admin. the admin. Well, yeah, I don't like the. Well, a lot of that, apparently about a third of that number is depreciation as well. But I, I don't know the answer, but I'm sure you have ideas. Well, I don't believe that state-funded healthcare is the best way to deliver the best possible healthcare at the lowest possible price. But even if you say state-funded healthcare is the best model, well, the French system, the Swiss system, the German system, the Dutch system, the Kiwi system, they all function better than the NHS. So there are better state, there are much, much better state systems than ours. Do we know why? What, they, what are they doing different? Or is it just because we're fucking useless at everything now? <laughs> bit of that but I mean I just take a much more and the American system is like crony American and um, the American government spends more per capita on healthcare than we do I know. and the American citizens don't even get healthcare that's free at the point of use um, you know I I, I I would rather just self Google every time I get ill I just self Google and self diagnose rather than have the the hassle of going to the doctor. And I just know loads of people that like me. How many things and have I'll you reach done? a certain point when I get probably get into my 70s or something, there'll be a certain point where, you know, I just hate going to the doctors. We've got a private doctor's near us yeah. that opened up recently and it's £50 a visit. They'll see you the same day sometimes, at least the next day, and they are brilliant. Well, the beauty of, of, of the problem with private healthcare is because government healthcare is in the market, it pushes up the price of private healthcare. And... So 
if it was just purely a market driven, you know, the friendly societies of the 19th century provided healthcare and it worked very well at the, at the level of, of the standards of the time. And, but the, you need, at the moment, the doctor under their, the, 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 the problem with the NHS is that it, it's geared in flavor of the supplier, not the user. And the doctor is not answerable to the patient. And it, that has that sort of customer dynamic yeah. needs to be in place where the doctor is answerable to the patient. And if the doctor delivers a bad service, then the patient can sack him. But the customer in the NHS does not have that power. The customer in the NHS has no power. Well, you're exactly so, right because I'm using this service because the NHS is so bad. You phone up for an appointment, it's three weeks yeah. for a doctor's appointment. You go to the A&E, it's four to five hours. I saw a, I've got I broke my ankle playing football. So I had to go have all this ankle treatment. They didn't want to do an MRI of my ankle. And I went to see the, I call him the paedophile, but I went to see the podiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to see the paedophile and he does all these things. And he said, look, it's going to cost you five grand to have an MRI. And if you want both your MRIs down, it's 10 grand. But I can refer you to the NHS. It's not like an immediate thing that needs doing. So, you know, it'll be about a two or three month wait and just do it through the NHS. So I said, great. This is last July. I still haven't got an appointment for the MRI. And I, I was on the phone to them yesterday. It took me an hour to get them on the phone. And there's like, oh, uh, we, we, you're on a waiting list and you'll come off the waiting list in five months' time and then we'll book you an appointment, which will probably be a few months after that, for an MRI on my ankles. And I'm like, I wish I'd just played the 10 grand. I have private health care because uh, we got it in my old company a few years ago. For me and the two kids, it's £150 a month. And and this is just, you know, this is not like a flex. It's just that's that's the cost. It's the last thing. I would get rid of Sky Sports and Netflix and Spotify before I get rid of that <laughs> because I've had to use it for my back and I've had to use it for my son's shin splints. When my son's had shin splints, straight down to London within a couple of days, MRI scan, all done, all paid for. My back, when my back went, three days within a phone call, I was in and I had the operation it's the last thing I would get rid of. It's I, and, and I think the value for money... But we're money, lucky because we can afford it. We're lucky. Yeah, but I think there's a lot more people who could afford that who don't do it. Maybe, because, but the, NH, the NHS has become a political tool. Of course. And it's just supposed to be about healthcare. And that's the problem when things like education has become a political tool. This is why I'm a libertarian. You know, I just think these things should be, education should be about teaching. Healthcare should be about healthcare. No more than that. And, in a, and, and if everything was just market driven and there was no state involvement, the actual cost would end up being a lot lower. And then you say, what about the poor and needy? What about the people who can't afford it? Well, charity is a basic human characteristic we are all charitable and if and if we are empowered by having more money in our pockets because we are tax less then we will become even more charitable because there will be not be that attitude well i've paid their tax i've paid my taxes it's somebody else's problem with when 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 you don't when in a libertarian society with where the government doesn't do anything uh, the responsibility falls on citizens to do stuff. Uh, at the moment, that responsibility is the states. So, you know, with freedom comes responsibility. And my belief is that that competition improves productivity. And just as competition in food or clothing or something has driven down so that we can all wear amazing clothes at very little cost unless we're Richard Hart, um, the... <laughs> <laughs> the 
those those same dynamics could exist in education and in healthcare. And if there was no state involvement, they would be a lot better and a lot cheaper. Feel like I should become a libertarian, don't I? <laughs> I can't believe you're not. I can't believe you're not a rabid libertarian, <laughs> having you, worked in Bitcoin as long as you have. Do you know, do you know what it is? Is that I find myself. I always find myself just a bit of a centrist, but I find myself a centrist now in between left, right, and libertarians. Yeah. What I I, I struggle with the idea of a libertarian society working unless everyone agrees they're a libertarian. If everyone doesn't agree they're a libertarian, you will just have new powers, new structures, new abuses. But what I do think I wish would happen, I wish there was a libertarian party, just like the same size maybe as the Lib Dems, who who could have a bit of power and just and their goal is just make government smaller, let's reduce tax. Like some That's supposed to be the Thatcherite arm of the Conservative Party, but nothing ever happened. Well, bloody Boris Johnson came out saying he was a libertarian. Well, exactly. A fucking liar. Yeah. But, but if you had a libertarian party with power and their mandate was less tax, smaller government, because we have a pull from left to right, but we don't have a pull from uh, big to small. Yeah. And if we had the pull from big to small, then because that left to right balance I just balances, think, I think probably half the country are conservative with a small C. Generally speaking, they believe in less, more individual responsibility, less, not no tax and no government, mm. but less government and less tax and more individual responsibility. But that, and that's this kind of silent majority that struggles to articulate itself. It struggles to be represented in politics and the way of government getting elected, promising this, that and that, the other, it, it just is not articulated and not represented. They need a better, less is more... Yeah, mandate to run on, but like, fuck, maybe it just all needs to implode. On the, I, I think it does. Yeah, I, I, the only way to solve all of this is bankruptcy. And you know, we were talking about how fragmented and divided and everything else. You know, I'm, I strongly believe that money is the blood of a society. It courses through everything, and you, if a body is to be healthy, its blood, blood must be healthy. And if blood is poisoned. The rest of society is poisoned. And that is, you know, fiat money is is poisonous. And I, it courses through our society. And, I, you know, I said patient zero. I Honestly, if we can clean up the blood, we clean up the money system, then everything else like your deficits and everything else, because once you have independent money, governments can't run up deficits. They just can't because the market won't allow them. They'll run it up a little bit and then they'll go bust. But when they've got the power to print, that doesn't happen. So if we fix money, we get that blood pure again and healthy, then we'll be all right. But we might have to go through a lot of pain before we get there. All right, with football coming up, I think that's a good place to close it out. Yeah, I can Paul... see Dan's constantly nudging you, looking at his watch, going, the game's starting, the game's Paul, starting. Paul Sean here, for the last two days, I think we've orange-pilled him over four interviews. He's going to be leaving here. He's going to be going around the streets going, fucking Bitcoin, have you heard about Bitcoin? The money system's <laughs> fucked. Uh, Dominic, listen, always a pleasure. Love chatting to you. Uh, really appreciate you. Thanks for coming on. I will go and listen to the full performance and when you're uh, doing it drive it do it listen when you're driving your car okay i'll do it on a drive and uh we'll share out on the show notes and uh prediction for england france tomorrow okay um kisses on a postcard.com yes for the podcast if you want to read my Substack, stack um, my Substack's now one of the top 20 Substacks, financial Substacks in the world pretty good oh, wow for an english bloke because you know i've got all the americans but anyway frisbee.substack.substack.com England, France, well, you you never bet with your heart. 
do you? You should never bet with your heart. And I just think France are better than we are and they're going to win 2-1. Danny, score prediction tomorrow. I would probably go 2-1 England. I think I think one all penalties. All right, this is going to come out after Can the I World Cup Can I revise my prediction? Over. Oh, is no, it? we're all going to look like So balls. who be... wins the World Cup? France or, France or Brazil? England. You know only one person can win. Come on, you're not sitting on the fence here. France, Brazil final, Brazil edge it. Okay. Come on, Sean. Portugal. What? Ah, that's that's a wise wise words. I'll tell you a funny thing, right? So before they've, this, they've got good players in every position. Before this World Cup started, I was like, "Fuck this World Cup, fuck Qatar and their human oh. rights." And and then like I came a little bit round actually thinking, do you know what? What I, when when the tournament started, I realised actually the whole world is looking at you, and you'll realise how. And what if this tournament does change the country? What if they open up a bit more? What if they realise actually it's better to be. You know, to treat their workers better and to be a little bit more liberal. Like, what if? And and actually, maybe it can do that. And I I was going to boycott watching the games, and I just had to watch the football. And I think it's been the I think it's the best World Cup certainly since Italian '90. And in terms of football, it might be the best I've seen. It's a really good World Cup. Um, there haven't been that many upsets so far. Apart, well, they've the Germany, the Germany, but oh, Morocco, Spain. Yeah, yeah. I Saudi Arabia, Argentina. I, I, There's been a few. Yeah, no, I meant, but in terms of, if you look at the, the makeup of the last yeah. eight, you would maybe expect Spain and Germany to be there, but the other, you know, maybe Croatia's a bit of a surprise and Morocco, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's been a really good World Cup. I've really enjoyed it. I'm ashamed of the fact that I've enjoyed it. I'm ashamed. Um, but you know what? I wasn't one of the guys who was, you, you, you know, I, I really resent the Gary Nevilles and the and the Gary Linekers of this world who are always pontificating about politics on Twitter and telling everyone else they're bad and evil. And when the crunch came for them, they put their careers and their wallets ahead of their principles. And then they went there and then they tried to virtue signal once they was there once they were there. So I I resent that and I find that hypocritical. And I really like there's something I really like about the fact that all the fans have got these like they've adapted the sort of the Arab robes, the yeah. robes to the colours of their thing. I don't find that really funny. Is, is it is it's called a rube? It's actually I don't know what the word is. They were talking about it on the radio at one point. But yeah, I, I love that too. Because the guy was asking, is that insulting? It's like, no, it's not. We love it's it. It's funny. Yeah. It's you know, and it's what happens when two cultures merge. You know, it's like two it's like it's like w- when two countries merge and you get you know, for example, Indian food and English food merge with all Indian immigration to England. Then you end up with this tikka masala dish that's the national favourite dish and nobody in India's ever eaten it in their life. Or curry sauce and chips. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and it's where two cultures merge. And this is just another example of that. Well, I, listen, look, last thing I'll finish on, I was in Paris on uh, start this week, Monday, Tuesday, and I was asking every Frenchman what do you think of England? Because I don't think you can see your own country objectively. You can't. We. That's another thing we forget is how well the English are perceived abroad. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, people love us. So I was asking that because I know every England player who's good and bad. I only know the good French players. I don't know the ones they think are shit. And so I said, and they, everyone was saying the same. It's like, no, we. Everyone said we think you're a threat. You can beat us, but we have Mbappe. That's what they say. They, they're putting all their hopes on Mbappe. Yeah. Another interesting thing I saw today. They've got two or three big players who aren't there. Pogba and a couple of others. Yeah. But, you know, they've got so much depth, the French. So have we. Yeah. Well, I, I still think Grealish should be in the team. but 
Yeah, it's, where do you make them work? I, I, I would like Grealish to be playing the old free-floating Gazza role. Yep. He should be the number 10. Yeah. And then who do you drop? I'd have a front three of... I would have... Oh, don't let's stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you dropping Kane? No. So you're playing Kane, Grealish, Foden? Yeah, Kane, Grealish, Foden, probably. And I wouldn't have Sterling or Rashford. All the, I accept, though, Rashford had a good game. Rashford's a good, great guy to He's bring a to good, the bench. Yeah. Yeah, Saka. I, I would consider playing three at the back and having Saka as left wing back, but then Luke Shaw's been brilliant. See, we've got depth. You can't, like, yeah. We've got depth and, and, you know, Saka plays well and he's he's an old soul, Saka. He's an old head on young shoulders. Yeah. There's a wisdom to him, but but I prefer Grealish. Right, okay. Well, listen, let's go watch some football. <laughs> Big shout out to Sean. Thanks to Sean for these four shows he's done for us. Appreciate you, man. Thanks, uh, Dominic. Uh, I will see if I can get down on the 16th. My dad arrives on the 14th. If he wants to go, I'll be there. Okay. It's, fair. it's comedy, comedy, comic songs in Camden. All right, Very I'll funny. see what I can do. All right, let's go. Thank you. All right. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that? You know what? I always love talking to Dominic and uh, really appreciate everything he's done for me. Um, when we launched the football team, he came down and commentated on the first game. When I made a film, he, he came on and gave his perspective on inflation. And whenever I asked him to come on the podcast, he always comes and adds some new and interesting perspectives and things to talk about. Great guy. Definitely go and check out everything he's doing, done. Go and check out his musical and yeah, listen, we're coming to the end of the year. Crazy, crazy year. Going to be reflecting on this with a with a couple of guests soon. I think you probably know who one of those will be. And yeah, planning for 2023. I'm going to be off to Nashville and Austin in January. Going to be hooking up with some Bitcoiners, hanging out, talking about Bitcoin, talking about the economy, talking about football. So hope to see some of you there. All right. If you've got any questions, you want to reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I will see you all later in the week. <laughs>